This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, And I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Hey, howdy, hey, Hardwood Knox listeners, I am Dan Favalli, coming at you with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome times awesome, fantabulous, spectaculario, is devastated that there are only two installments left of The Last Dance documentary co-host Andrew D. Bailey. As you might have guessed from that long-winded intro, we are going to talk about episodes seven and eight of The Last Dance documentary, which were, as the first six were, uh, very interesting We'll talk, get in deeper to some of the stuff that actually happened, and we're also going to talk about some things that we're hoping to see from the final two episodes that we haven't necessarily seen just yet. First, though, we have our usual housekeeping notes. Please, please, pretty please, with sugar on top, rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knocks on iTunes. You can also find us wherever else you are getting your podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all those good places. Even if you are consuming us on those mediums, please head over to iTunes, search Hardwood Knox, throw us that five-star rating, write a written review with whatever feedback you have, nice platitudes, insults, as long as it has five stars, we don't care. Definitely subscribe if you have not already. This really helps out the podcast. If you have done all those things, though, please, word of mouth helps as well. Retweet our promos on Twitter. Tell your friends, family members, frenemies, random people on social media. That all helps, too. We're continuously pimping ourselves, but it's for good reason. On that note, follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. I would encourage it. Go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox, and we will come up. Subscribe, like our videos. That helps, too. Last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsors that make this podcast possible. BetOnline.ag and BlueChew, who you will be hearing from in just a few moments. Andy, how the hell are you? I'm doing great. Um, you're right. I am kind of sad. There's only two of these left. I, uh, I've loved this entire series, but episodes seven and eight, for some reason, I just thought were incredible. Um, I think they've had the biggest effect on me so far. And just so you know, Ken Griffey Jr. hit 56 home runs in 1998. That is... Uh, tangentially related to a conversation we were having before we started podcasting. <laughs> I don't know if that's who you were thinking of, but I just, I think it's wild that a 56 home run season is just sort of lost to history, but that makes sense. Cause McGuire hit 70 and Sosa at 66. Yeah, what maybe. a way to start a Michael Jordan podcast. This was well, because uh, I guess 1998. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of related. Well, and also they're going to have the documentary on the McGuire. Sosa chase. Maybe go. Griffey was involved early on. I'll have to look and see like where he was with his game logs because I actually, for some reason, not that I forgot about him, but I guess I didn't appreciate how early that was. Like Griffey was still Griffey in 98, I believe. So, um, and this is my MLB history is, is lacking. Baseball used to be my favorite sport, but right around the millennia is when I just sort of checked out maybe a little bit after that. I think after the Subway World Series is really when I started dwindling there. However, this is a basketball <laughs> podcast. Uh, so I, I'm in agreement with you. I've really enjoyed The Last Dance. I think you need to appreciate it for what it is, which is Michael Jordan propaganda that you need to take with a grain of salt. And so if you're looking to really just get into the innermost uh, demons that are related to Michael Jordan, like if you want a more impartial outlook at the gambling problems or the treatment of Jerry Krause, that's just not what this documentary is. And so as long as we can acknowledge that, I think it's totally fine to enjoy the hell out of this, particularly when there's there's just nothing else happening. I don't give a, I don't give a shit about UFC. It shouldn't even be happening right now. I can't get into 
uh, KBO. I'm sorry to Korean baseball players. So I think particularly at this stage of life with all that's going on, as long as you understand what this is, you can absolutely positively enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah. And I have, uh, so far, I, um, I, I think it's just been really, really gripping, captivating stuff. And I think a lot of the, like, maybe there's still some bombshell to come in, um, episode nine or 10, but all the talk about how people are going to hate Jordan after this, um, it's like the, it's, it's had the opposite effect well, the, on me. The talk was started by Jordan himself. And so that seems like a yeah. pretty calculated move on his behalf, almost sort of overselling what we were going to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that, that could be for sure. But I, I think it's just a, a lot of it's, it's behind the scenes of a lot of stuff that people already knew about Jordan. Um, I just texted my brother today after I watched these episodes and, and said, I feel like this documentary is, is just kind of making me happy and confirming my decision to put him above LeBron in the uh, top 50 that Bleacher Report had me do last summer. I know that you've kind of been, I don't know if you've taken a definitive stand on whether it's LeBron or Jordan, and I don't know if this has changed your mind, um, but I, there really is an intangible quality with Jordan and you and I have talked about this. I think we talked about it on the last takeaways pod that we did that we were a little too young to have like great, great vivid memories of this and like all the behind the scenes stuff. But I do remember a feeling of inevitability whenever Jordan was in a series against somebody, it just felt like he was going to win. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen that with any player since then. Part of that. And I'm going to actually in agreement with you. That's how I felt probably because I was so young that every shot he took, I assumed was just going to go in. And I've never felt like that about a player, except for maybe 2015, 2016, Stephen Curry is really the last time I've even come close close to feeling that way. And maybe there's like a little bit of youthful ignorance there with the inevitability of Jordan, because we weren't necessarily old enough to understand more of the intricacies of the game or remember some of the, just the poor outings that he had, if you're not following the game as closely, but I, I absolutely understand the mystique around Jordan now in uh, when we're talking about people who believe he's the greatest player of all time. I do not, I don't get nostalgic for the game. I'm not watching this footage and then seeing that the scores were like 76 to 73 being like, I really yeah. missed this shit. No, I don't. Uh, I, I will. However, my second point to that though, while I understand Jordan's case as the goat better than ever, I've never had less of a desire to pit him against LeBron James, just because the circumstances of everything about their career were just so different. There's, you know, there's a talk about the supporting cast. LeBron has never played with another top five player in the league at the time. And Jordan had that a lot with Scottie Pippen. Anthony Davis is probably the closest LeBron has come, I would say, to that. Dwayne Wade was pretty close that first year, too. Yeah, that first year, but just looking at viability. And then True. beyond yeah. that, the game is so different. Also, the the coverage is so different. And so we've talked about this, too, where that mystique around Jordan was probably a little bit born from the scarcity of the coverage. Whereas yes, there were still media scrums and all that, but there just wasn't that social media access. And so LeBron seems like he's in our face 24, seven, 365, because not only are players more accessible, but they're more robotic with their brand management. And so we have more access, but they're less candid. And I think that's detracted from LeBron's mystique uh, more so than it did for Jordan's. And I don't think there's really anything wrong about that. I, I just agree with you though, that those are really my, my two points is that I understand people being so stubborn about Jordan being the goat. I've also never had less of an inclination to have that discussion between he and LeBron after watching this. And I don't know if that makes sense to you at all. It does. Um, I, and I actually have something in the pipeline. It was actually pitched to me by the editors to, to basically make the case that you don't need to compare the two. Um, I don't, I don't know when that'll come together, but I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And I actually, um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was on a radio spot or something. Somebody asked me about ranking players and, and I just talked about how difficult it is. And to me, it's, um, there's two big, big difficulties. One is across eras, which I think a lot of people talk about. So it's it's just difficult to compare Michael Jordan who played in the nineties. Like you said, the games are just a lot different. The scores are lower. The way defense was played was different. Um, I, I think the level of, I, I, th- I think the talent pool was a little bit more shallow then, um, which is understandable. The game has just continued to grow over the years. So it's difficult to to compare across eras. And then 
to just judge someone's talent level in basketball. I think the the margins are so so thin um, that it's hard to definitively say, well, this player is better than that player. Um, so it's almost easier to do like tiers and and within the same era. It's impossible to compare. So um, I, I don't know if there is a way to definitively say this is the best player ever. Um, but as I've watched this documentary again, I just I, I think. I also like the distinction. I'm rambling at this point, but I like the distinction between greatest and best too, which I know is like a semantics thing. But when you watch Jordan and you see some of these quotes um, that he's giving in these interviews uh, about his desire to win and his competitiveness and stuff like that, I just, I can't imagine anybody ever um, merging competitiveness and talent to the same degree that Jordan did. Um, I, I think there are incredibly talented players. I think there are incredibly competitive players. Uh, his his combination of those two things, I, I just don't know if I can put anybody on that level. Well, then this documentary has succeeded. You've bought into the Michael Jordan <laughs> propaganda. That's a good. That's actually a good spot to actually cannonball into these two episodes, though. Is I'd like to go through maybe what our favorite quotes or moments were in a second. But I think, given the subject matter of these two episodes. It's the closest this documentary has really come to humanizing Michael Jordan. Like we saw yeah. a little bit of the footage, I think, in episodes five and six about how he was getting tired of fame. But this time, this deals with his the murder of his father, his first retirement, what he was going through in baseball, um, how he was even kind of perturbed from afar when uh, Pippen didn't go into the game in the final seconds of game mm-hmm. three of, I think it was the 94 semifinals at that point. Hopefully I'm not misremembering there. And then just subsequent, the desire to win to where I still don't understand why he was crying at the end of, was that episode seven or episode eight? It was episode seven, correct? Just all sort of blurring together. But it's kind of dealing also with, maybe it feels like he was a little bit affected about how people perceive his treatment and relationship with teammates. Uh, Perhaps he doesn't care, but it did seem like he was trying to justify why he was so hard on his teammates. While at the same time, retaining that level of mythology to where I'll use whatever it is to fuel my drive to win. It was, I don't even remember the guy's name right now. It's I'm almost Bradford blank. Smith? Yes. And so he makes up Bradford Smith saying, good game, Michael, at the end of his just random outburst yeah. so that he can hold the grudge over and just torch him there. There was a nice balance of that. But again, between covering the, the murder of his father, which was clearly tragic and uh, him talking about his relationship with teammates, trying to explain why he was the way he was, Going through, they delved more into his fatigue uh, with fame at the time a little bit and segueing into into baseball. I think these two episodes probably humanized Jordan more so than than any of the previous ones. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And maybe that's why I love these two so much, because I, I think like it delved a little bit deeper into who Jordan was, what drove him, what made him the maniacal competitor that he was. Attention Hardwood Knox listeners, with currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can also bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. The stuff about his father was, you know, tragic, obviously. Very interesting, too. I like the story he told about how he got suspended three times as a sophomore in high school right. and his dad had kind of a heart to heart with him. And, and basically what, what got Jordan to realize or to, to get on the right track, so to speak, was he said, if you, if you don't get this, if you don't get on the right track, you can't play sports anymore. Um, and that was enough to kind of get him where he needed to go. And it just, he, he obviously had a close relationship with his father. Um, I thought it was interesting that he said, my dad taught me to turn a negative into a positive when talking about his father's death. Um, which I'm, I'm I, I don't even know how you turn that <laughs> into a positive. Um, 
maybe he eventually did. Uh, it, it was his opportunity to chase this dream that he had and that his father had for him to go play baseball. Um, the stuff with his father was was really, really good to me. And that's so he I, I actually just misremember a minute. He the episodes, both of them end with him crying. The first one is uh, when he's talking about, it's, Point. I guess, like the his desire to win or whatever. But then it's when they beat the uh, the Sonics right in 96. That- that part was awesome when he says this one's for dad or, or I can't remember exactly what he says to a moderate shot, but then they show him just bawling in the training room, sobbing on the floor. And yeah. that that's the part that really hit me more so than, than the first one. And so that was really a peek behind the curtain. This is related to that too. Apparently the, the take machines were just always churning. doesn't matter what time period we're talking about when, yeah. when his father gets murdered and they're, the headlines are, is this related to Jordan's gambling? Yeah, I just, um, and I'm going to preface it with this: as someone who has probably made jokes in poor taste before, one of which, as I've openly admitted, was about Rudy Gobert and the coronavirus. Never in a zillion years would I ever think about jumping to that type of conclusion, especially while being serious about it. Like that's a, a level of it's not even misreporting; it's almost worse than claiming that all of. Kobe Bryant's children were on the helicopter with him. They're the same level of bad, really. But it's yeah. like, how do yeah. you like not confirm sources there? And then how do you speculate about something? Like, how do you forget on even if it this guy seems like an icon in a way where he's untouchable and not human? How do you forget to that extent that he's human? That you're going to go right into? Is it his fault that his dad was murdered? I was I I did not remember that coverage tying into it, so I was fucking flabbergasted when I saw that. I liked his statement on that. Um, I simply cannot comprehend how others could intentionally pour salt in my open wound by insinuating that mistakes in my life are in some way connected to my father's death. Um, And we we complain about the hot take machines that are just always seem to be in overdrive nowadays. But you're right. It seems like that is not exclusive to our era. Maybe they're not as quickly uh, distributed to the masses. As they are today with, you know, 60 second uh, recaps of first take or whatever it is, whatever the Fox Sports show is called. Um, (laughs) I can't I can't remember. Sorry, Skip and Shannon. Um, No, that was a nice F you to Fox Sports. I support it. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, those that 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 take was just wild to me. Um, And it's another example of uh, how do you. How do you exist in that space that Jordan was in that level of fame where the instant reaction to the death of a loved one is that Um, I just I can't imagine first dealing with the death of your father at such an early age. And then um, just like he's he put it, I I can't comprehend someone doing that. Uh, So that was fascinating for sure. Yeah, there's just like. It's not even, it's worse than selective memory when it comes to professional athletes. It's, it's like when people talk about, they get mad that, that there's a comparison between LeBron being more of an activist than Jordan. And then they'll just say that LeBron needs to do more, but like they forget he opened a school and like has had all these just programs that help kids go to college. And I'm not actually arguing yeah. over him and Jordan, but we, people just forget. Or celebrate LeBron's activism and ignore the China stuff. Right. It's, and people, there can't be like a gray area anymore. It has to be cut and dry where you're on one side of the fence where you can't acknowledge that, Hey, LeBron's done a lot of good, but pretty much all this commentary on China is incredibly hypocritical. And that's not even just, you know, (laughs) that's not even just related to NBA players. The other sort of thing that I find ridiculous, and it didn't have to do with MJ's father's death, but it had to do with the gambling. We get uh, David Stern commenting on interesting. Yeah. Yeah. MJ's hiatus uh, from the NBA and a lot of, or I would say a good many people have speculated that the league suspended Jordan because of his gambling. And David Stern said this, the folklore, the urban legend that I sent him away because he was gambling is ridiculous. It's just not true. And I not having any inside information on this, I don't know how anyone could think that that actually happened just because why would David Stern, who's trying to build the league's brand (laughs) <laughs> jettison its most marketable most profitable player it just doesn't make any sense to me yeah by far the most marketable 
player they've ever had. We we talked about his shoe deal in the last episode we did together and how he, you know, beat their projections for sales by like a thousand percent. Um, he, he drove the league to a level of visibility that it just hadn't had in the past. And to, to say, okay, you're done in the prime of your career. Um, when you're coming off a third championship, I, I mean, he was as hot as celebrities get, uh, at that time. So to, ban him from basketball for a year because of some gambling debts. Um, that that conspiracy theory never really made a lot of sense. And they had David Stern talked about it. I can't remember who else they drew quotes from on that, but there was five or six people that just emphatically denied it. And they even brought up that same sort of logical argument that you made um, that it just, it just didn't make sense in the first place. Um, so I think, yeah, there was there's probably five or ten minutes devoted to, no, that theory is ridiculous. So uh, let's move on. What what else did you was some of your favorite moments from this? Maybe I don't. I, we probably didn't touch enough on just how they were trying to capture the competitive nature of Jordan to the point that again he's in tears at the end of episode seven, and you you had to kind of help me understand that moment because I was like, it was nice to see, and I think as a documentary maker, you probably want that moment where he has to call for break at the end, like you want that on camera. And it didn't, it seemed to be legitimate, but I'm like, of all, I just didn't, I just didn't understand it necessarily. And if that's really how badly he wanted to win, I guess I respect it, but I probably respect it a little bit more if he's actually just concerned that people really think he's an asshole and he doesn't want to be remembered as that asshole. Yeah. So I kind of thought about it from that perspective after you and I texted about it. And I, I think you're probably right. Um, in the moment when I saw it, I thought he was like, he he's just that um, emotionally invested in winning that even like looking back on it and thinking about it um, stirs up some emotions inside of him. But your interpretation, and I may just need to watch the last five minutes again. I, I might have just been typing it at the moment or something as I was doing the takeaways. Um but that would also make sense if he was because it's just coming off the stories about how hard he was on his teammates. Um, if he looks back on those relationships, because when you spend a lot of t- time with a team in sports um, at any level, those those guys become your brothers. And I'm sure it's even more so in the NBA because you're on, you know, you're, you're on these plane trips all the time you you basically are family for nine or ten months out of the year so mm-hmm. maybe if he looks back and he hears these quotes from his teammates about how difficult it was to play with him and stuff i i could see how you could you know with the benefit of hindsight um he's now many many years removed from the game and he thinks geez <laughs> i uh maybe, maybe there is a little bit of remorse um towards that now there are other comments that he's made in the documentary that would suggest that there's no remorse and maybe you just it just depends on which question you catch him with or, you know, at, mo- at what moment you catch him. Because, um, you know, he he has some quotes even in this episode I thought were really um, fascinating. I'm trying to find one from my oh, – okay, here it is. <laughs> Winning has a price and leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenged people when they didn't want to be challenged. Um, they talked about the fight with Steve Kerr in this episode. There, there was another quote from Jordan where he said, I tried to get him to fight me a couple of times talking about Scott Burrell. Um, <laughs> there was the stuff with BJ Armstrong. It, it just seemed like probably every single teammate he had at some point was in the Jordan crosshairs. Um, because he just, he, he demanded a level of competitiveness out of guys that many of them probably didn't have. Uh, and, and it became obviously a hallmark of his career. And it's it's now becoming a hallmark of this documentary. Well, Steve Kerr even said his theory was, if you can't handle pressure from me, you're not going to be yeah. able to handle, handle pressure of the NBA playoffs. And also the quote that you sort of dropped for series going off in the background, excuse me. Uh, Siri needs to shut up while I'm recording podcasts, <laughs> man. Um, so it, the, the quote that you just relayed from Jordan, he also finished it with an when he's talking about challenging his teammate, he's saying, and I earned that right because my teammates who came after me, yeah. they didn't endure all the things that I endured. Yeah. And is that the quote that he ended up tearing up on too after, or was that the one about the tyrant? Because he was, he, he even said in the documentary when people see this, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. And he said, he also says, well, that's you because you never won 
anything. I can't tell if there's, is it a level of just entitlement? Is it a level of self-confidence? Is he just trying to justify everything he did because he wants the perception of him to be better? Does he just want to not be sorry for the way he acted? It feels like there's a lot of layers to just the way he treated his teammates and the drive to win and then how that's related to how he wants to be perceived. It's all of a sudden become very confusing to me (laughs) after seeing this documentary in a way that it wasn't beforehand. Well, maybe maybe there are layers and maybe there's layers to it for him too. And that's why he gets <laughs> randomly emotional about it. Um, now I really do want to go back and, and rewatch the last, at least interview there in episode seven to at least have a better idea of what made him emotional in that moment. Because I do, I do think that he's, there's kind of like a push and pull within him. I mean, it's, it's kind of wild for me to, play armchair psychologist through the documentary to Michael Jordan. Um, But it does seem like there's maybe some conflicting feelings there. Guys, are you looking to last longer than the value of a New York Knicks first round draft pick? Get the bluechew.com. Bluechew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis. So, you know, they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E chew.com promo code blue wire there something else that stood out to me they got into pippins uh sitting out the final seconds of it was the 94 semifinals right when tony kukoc hit that game three winner uh this was one of the weirdest quotes to me scotty pippin says it's one of those incidents where i wish it never happened but if i had a chance to do it over again i probably wouldn't change it yeah uh just a complete contradiction one so one thing that has stood out to me through the documentary is pippen is like almost as much of a competitive maniac as jordan right pippen also needs to narrate books on tape but that's that's just a side note (laughs) yeah for sure yeah there's and i i almost for i can't even say i forgot because i probably just didn't recognize at the time there's just been a re-emphasis of how actually good scotty pippen was like that 94 bulls team was legit and he was the driving force behind mm-hmm. it and the fact that he did sit out yeah it was a selfish act but it's because he wanted the ball in those final seconds uh and phil jackson was like he didn't even tell anyone that he was checking out either though and when phil jackson find out he was basically like fuck him it was just yeah. it was so bizarre but i guess you're right it's i didn't really now that you've said it it does kind of show how much of a, a maniacal competitor that he was not just jordan yeah my favorite part about that little story too was probably when they, when Kerr and, and uh, Bill Cartwright re- recalled the speech that Cartwright gave. A lot of crying in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess they said Cartwright was crying in his speech and, and just saying like, we never would have expected that you would quit on us. Um, and it sounds like that was kind of a turning point for a lot of those guys with Pippen. Um, and it's interesting too, because, you know, earlier in that little portion of the episode, they talk about what a different and and they almost seemed relieved to talk about Pippen's leadership style as opposed mm-hmm. to Jordan's. They they were saying that you know he was the leader, but he wasn't nearly as demanding. He wasn't cussing people out, um, and so maybe they grew to appreciate that style over the course of the season, and then you know to have it built up all year and then kind of be let down in that big moment um, was probably difficult for them. I I really noticed Phil Jackson's face. After Kukoc hits the shot and they show everybody walking off the court, you can tell that he's upset about something. Because um, that's, you know, that's a big moment. Your star player refuses to go back into the game. That's huge. And, you know, they sounds like they got over it. They didn't win that series. Um, but just from, you know, a teammate chemistry standpoint, it sounds like they were okay. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I didn't pay enough homage to it when Steve Kerr was saying it while we were watching. But Steve Kerr even said, Scotty's one of our favorite teammates, one of our favorite people in the world. Yeah. He quit on us. We couldn't believe that happened. It was devastating. And so there definitely was that 
level of shock there that they had to deal with. It wasn't even just the act itself, but the source of it, because it doesn't seem like anyone would have expected something like that to come from Pippen. And so that you, that was a great point. I didn't really give it much consideration in the moment. Um, let's go back to the Kerr fight for a second too. Um, Cause I was just, I was thinking about Phil Jackson and the way he reacts to things. I thought it was kind of funny um, in hindsight, at least. I mean, it's, <laughs> Not funny that Jordan beat up Steve Kerr, but I mean, he punched him in the eye. He didn't beat him up. He punched him in yeah, the eye. Well, so he punched him in the eye, but then in a different interview, he said he beat up the littlest guy on the court. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Can we but also I, well, ask for a minute? How do you not have Steve Kerr's number? He was like, he had to call someone to get Steve Kerr's number. Like what? Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't get, um, Jordan doesn't have your number until you stand up for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was kind of funny that Phil Jackson goes down into the locker room or wherever. I can't remember where they met up. And Jordan, before Jackson even said anything, he goes, I know. Um, went too far that time. But it was interesting that Kerr said that that was the moment that kind of uh, garnered Jordan's respect for him. <laughs> and it's you know it's funny that he says, I tried to get Scott Burrell to fight me in practice too. Like it wasn't just, come on guys, let's try harder and practice. You know, let's, let's get this right. Mm-hmm. You know, just sort of go through the motion stuff. Like he, he wanted to bring demons out of people. Um, he, he, he wanted to unearth the most competitive impulses that these guys had, because in, I think in Jordan's mind, we're not gonna, we're not gonna win championships, which is, you know, it seems like all he cares about. And another interesting quote from him was, uh, I'm sidetracking myself at this point, but he said the playoffs is the highest level of competition that we have in our game. You got 82 games in the regular season, but you can kick all that aside. The playoffs is the playoffs and to be able to play against the best competition. That was the driving force for me without a doubt. Um, And so I think he knew that I I need guys. Nobody's going to be as good as me, but I need guys who are at least going to fight as hard Mm -hmm. as I do in the playoffs. And I think that was, that was sort of the motivation for a lot of what he did with teammates. Yeah. It, it's just, I don't, I don't even know where I ultimately fall on it. It seems like there that we could get a lot more into it. And it's actually going to be one of the things that I point out when we talk about what we're still sort of hoping to see. Uh, Was there anything else that stood out on a profound level or just something that was funny that you took away from these two episodes of the doc? Uh I'll just do some rapid fire ones. The, uh, they, they, they delve into his baseball season a little bit. I, I thought it was interesting when Terry Francona said if he could have had 1500 at bats, he would have been in the majors. Um, you know, a two Oh two average, we kind of look at that and scoff, but that, you know, the guy hadn't played baseball for 14 years and he drove in 51 runs in double a and hit two Oh two. Uh, and had it sounds f- like made had that 13 game hitting streak streak to start the season and i thought this stuff was really cool about how he was ticked off at the media coverage and so he spent all these extra hours in the batting cages getting his his swing right um and i you know i gotta take terry francona at his word i mean i think he's a pretty good manager he's won a world series um and and i gotta trust what i've seen from jordan as a basketball player too i think if he had stuck with it i you know he's not going to turn into willie mays or anything but I wouldn't have been surprised if he could have figured it out. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, that we we already mentioned the the fake slight that he invented from LeBradford Smith. Yeah. That was fascinating. The way he went at BJ Armstrong, like he was he was just looking for for people to go at all the time. There and was the was stuff it? about Space Jam. Go ahead. Oh yeah, that was. It's almost like his just. It's back to his work ethic. Talking about how he's. Has he's on call, like he has to wake up at seven, or that's when his first call is. Then he gets a two hour break, he's practicing. Then he does his last call at like six or seven mm-hmm. at night, and then he goes to scrimmaging with actual NBA players. Reggie Miller's there, Patrick yeah. Ewing's there, and then he lifts weights and then does it all over again. Pretty amazing. Um, and and the fact that he, you know, basically made Warner Brothers build him a gym with an NBA floor on it. Um, that actually wasn't that surprising to me, but. <laughs> Um, and one other thing that kind of stood out to me, it, nobody ever talks about the fact that the bulls lost in 95, that first season back. And they go into that a little bit in this episode. And I thought he, maybe he needed one more loss to kind of spur those next three championships. 
Um, it, it seems like he took that personally as he seemed to take a lot of losses personally in his career. And that was sort of the kickstart when he came back from baseball, losing that series, I think in the long run was, was probably a good thing for him. Interesting to see Horace Grant blossom too, as soon as he left Chicago. Yeah, uh, yeah for sure. And who was it that said that 45 isn't 23 when Jordan was still that at was 45? Anderson. That was Anthony Horace Anderson. He said some, some tough moments in NBA history. Yeah. Oh, missed free throws perhaps. Um, mm. And then Jordan changes back to 23 and kind of dominates. And the quote there I thought was interesting too. He said, I just felt like 45 wasn't natural. I wanted to go back to the feeling I had with 23. Yeah. Which is, um, this isn't, you know, a terribly original point, but there's a ton of sort of, uh, I can't even think of the word. Um, Why am I blanking on this? I'm, I'm hanging in suspense right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Superstition. Holy cow. Okay. Why did that take me so long? So much superstition in sports. And and yeah, I, I mean, I, my brother, I don't know if I've ever talked to about him much on the podcast, but he was a professional basketball player for a while. He wore the same rubber band um, on his hand every, every game, one of his years in college. Like there's just these little tiny things and you convince yourself in your mind that this has something to do with why I'm performing so well athletically. So I've got to keep going with this. Um, and it's, it's not surprising that Jordan has some of those ticks. No, not at all. What are you hoping to see from the last two episodes of the documentary that maybe we haven't seen yet or haven't gotten enough of? Uh, the jazz. Um, <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and I know, I can't remember who said that. Maybe it was a Rosh Marchese. Um, I think he's with the Los Angeles Times now. I think he tweeted something the other day about how Stockton filled his interview for this like the day before the season shut down. Um, oh, wow. This, they, they were still in the midst of putting this together when the season shut down. This was supposed to come out in August or September or something like that. And so they had time to put the finishing touches in all these episodes. I, I think as of a couple weeks ago, they were still working on episodes nine and ten. Um so obviously that's that's his opponent in the last dance season is the Utah Jazz. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know how how deep they go into those teams. They they've spent a little time on some of these Bulls opponents, like you know they spent some time with Barkley and the Suns. And you know this episode, <laughs> one more takeaway is the the <laughs> the stuff with Gary Payton and Michael Jordan was hilarious when they play that clip of Peyton saying that he, <laughs> yeah. he bothered Jordan and Jordan just starts cackling when he yeah, watched yeah. that. Um, that was one of my favorite scenes. But anyway, they've spent some time with a lot of Jordan's opponents. And I think this one, maybe I'm biased, but I think this is probably one that most people remember. It's, it's the most recent. Um, they faced him two years in a row. So I think we'll probably see some stuff on the Jazz. And I think it's, you know, it's starting to focus in a little bit more on that last dance season, 97-98. I think the focus is going to be even tighter on that last season here in the last couple episodes. Yeah, they'll probably spend 96-97 on episode 9. And then and while cutting back to the 97-98 the season like they've done all along. And then maybe the final episode yeah. will be purely about that. Is there anything else you want to see? Because I have a laundry list of things that I still want to see. Yeah, you mentioned some of them before we started recording, and I kept thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. So let's let's dive into your list. Well, one thing, I'd like to see more about his family. I know we just dealt with oh, the yeah. murder of his father, but like how he was as a husband and, and a father, it, I think that would continue the, hum, the humanization of Michael Jordan. And I'm not saying that that needs to be the goal of this documentary, but they've covered so many different aspects. And I think they've gone back in time more than people probably assumed. And so it feels like that should be fair game. And I know he's once divorced, so I don't know if that has something to do with it, but that I would like to see more about how he juggled being a father and, and husband throughout all this, because he's talking about how much he doesn't really like his life at points. And I'm just like, well, yeah. were you having yeah. a good time like with your kids and, and your family? Yeah, that would that's going to be really interesting to see if they delve into that. And I, I think one criticism that a lot of people have had of the documentary, and it's probably fair is it's, you know, very slanted to be pro Jordan. It sounds like he had a decent amount of control over, you know, 
you know, I don't know if he had the official final cut on anything, but it seems like his voice was involved in some way. So maybe you're right. Maybe if there is some family dynamic that he doesn't want explored in front of millions and millions of people, they probably aren't going to do it. Um, because obviously it's not worth it for the filmmakers to, to can the whole project if they can't do 10 minutes on his divorce or his family life. But I agree with you. It'd be very, very interesting to see. And I, I think the final point you made there is really interesting. I hadn't thought of is he does talk a lot about how, um, difficult his life was and how he'd been dragged down by basketball and be interesting if he could, you know, if, if his family was sort of a boon to him at any of these points. Another thing I'd like to see is let's be brutally honest and have a discussion about how many titles did Michael Jordan and the Bulls organization leave on the table because of his hiatus in what was that? 93, 94, and then most of 94, 95. And then because they dissolved the team, right before that lockout truncated season. I'd like there to be, you know, it'd be like sort of a, a look ahead, but like we've we've journeyed so far back into the past that I think that should also be fair game as well. And I don't think there's been enough of a conversation about that. And you can also tie it into, well, if he had stayed, do they, like, does the team never actually win those final three titles? Because yeah. you can't... Make it fail, maybe, yeah. Because you can easily assume that they would just win eight in a row, but that's just... The, the fatigue associated with that was he just always destined to try to retire on top and then this is also related to that and it was actually you that mentioned it like let's talk about him then coming back to play for the wizards like, yeah let's, let's get into that a little bit maybe that's a separate documentary and i'm going too far into the future but those are another two things that i would like to see covered as well and you mentioned the charlotte hornets too could we uh, mention them at least yeah, I mean, <laughs> at some point you would think they could get into his post-playing career. Man, maybe there maybe there will be some of that at some point. I think that's all fascinating. I you know, we we've seen a lot of dynasties or uh you know, close to dynasties over the course of the time that we've covered the NBA closely and there's a lot of them when they first form you think they're going to win five or six titles. Mm-hmm. Um didn't happen with the Heat, didn't happen with the Warriors. Uh, you know, two teams that were set up to run the table for a while. And you're right. I think that's a fascinating point that if Jordan and the whole team had stayed together in 93, 94, do they go on to win three more? Um, you know, by the time he come, by the time they have another championship winning team in 95, 96, a lot of the pieces are different than those first three title teams. Yeah, Scottie Pippen was the uh, only remaining member, right? Aside from Jordan, obviously. Yeah, I think you're right. So it's, it's essentially a completely different team other than the top two. Um, so that's that's interesting. Um, if they had, let's say he doesn't walk away, 93, 94, and, it pl- and plays all of 94, 95, and then goes a couple years after 98, um, it really is interesting to think about how many he could have gotten to because there's already so much mystique around, you know, he's 6-0 and in the finals. Um, does anyone knock him off if they become a little bit apathetic at some point, mm-hmm. you know? If he never leaves, that does that change his lore at all? I think it probably does. Um, at the same time, what if he did win eight or nine? And then you say, well, he's got eight or nine championships in the 90s compared to, you know, Bill Russell's 11 in the much smaller league. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't know if there's any way to make his profile any greater than it is. But, you know, eight or nine championships probably would have done it. I would say he left and the Bulls left at least one on the table because maybe maybe they stall out before they, and they don't win like those three consecutive ones that they actually did win. And perhaps they win in 93, 94 or something like that. But I think you can also argue that they stay together. Like there's maybe the potential that the reboot lasts just as long. So like, what if they just stall out? Let's say they win four in a row, like they win 93, 94, but then they still stall out 94, 95. If he's still playing, maybe that loss kind of reinvigorates them and they, you know, go on to win three more anyway, because that was, if they stayed together, so I would say one or two would probably be just my my estimation. It's completely non-scientific, but I do think I, I don't think if he never leaves and if they keep the bolts together longer, I don't think we're looking at fewer, obviously, or the same number of rings. I think we're looking at more. Yeah. I wonder what the team could have looked like if, if they could have found some way to salvage things after ninety seven, ninety eight. Like, what if they win that title, that last one, and Jerry Krause finally thinks, you know what, I, I might have been wrong about this. Let's let's try this one more time. Like, I don't, 
it seems like the relationship with Pippen was maybe past saving at that point. Um, so maybe you try to retool around Jordan, see what you can get for Pippen. I don't, but he was a free agent, right? So maybe you can't trade no, him. Probably, Pippen would have been gone. Yeah, I mean, unless sign and trade, obviously they could have, they could have. Yeah. Gone. Or what if Jordan well, just leaves in free agency and goes to another team? Yeah, it, I guess that was on the table too. Um, yeah, I I don't know. Um, I I think I agree with you to go back to the original question, like how many more titles do they win? Um, I, I don't think it fizzles out and they just completely implode kind of like the Warriors did, but I, I think they probably get one or two more. I'm with you. That was two, so two, that was two more quick things I kind of wanted to see, because weren't there points where Jordan was at least linked to other teams as he was going to be a free agent. I would have liked them and I don't think they're going to get into it. Would have gotten into that more at the time. Also, this is something that's really just coming to me. If he really hated fame that much, had he just signed with a different team, let's say this is 98. Could he have gone to just like small market, whatever? Because if he seemed to genuinely <laughs> hate fame that much, you know, people I've seen photoshops already of what if he went to the Knicks or the Lakers? What if he like just went to anywhere like Milwaukee? It's like sort of close yeah. to Chicago because if he seemed to hate fame that much, maybe he's the superstar that could have broke that mold. I think fame was going to follow him anywhere. Um, Fair enough. I mean, LeBron was a megastar in Cleveland, so yeah, he he could have gone to like Denver or Salt Lake, and probably the whole circus, the whole media circus would have followed him. Um, at that point, I mean, he was. Um, to this day, I mean, look at look at the reaction of this documentary. Like his his level of fame is still just out of this world. Right. Um, so yeah, I think I think the fame would have followed him, and this it, it is really fascinating to think about what could have gone differently though. Um, you know, widely considered by many people to be the greatest of all time. And he played, you know, fewer seasons than a lot of the other all time greats. He takes a one and a half year break, uh, in the, in the prime of his career to go play baseball. He takes another break towards the end of his career, uh, before he comes back and plays for the wizards. He missed an entire season with a broken foot. Um, there are a lot of interesting sort of turns in the road in Michael Jordan's career, but almost every time he he gets going, you know, straight again and wins a bunch of championships. Obviously, he couldn't do that for the Wizards, um, but it, it's it's just remarkable to me that uh, this. I'm, I'm rambling again, but this whole documentary it's just um, been really really fascinating to be taken back to that era of basketball and to get more of an inside look of, of what really drove Jordan. I just, I've really, really enjoyed this. You might've set the record for ums in those takeaways that you've ever said. <laughs> I respect it. The last thing that I would like to see, and this is moves fast forward a little bit, but like, does he have any tightly knit relationships from the, the any of these players that he played with? You know, are Scotty, Scotty Pippen and Jordan talk about each other in glowing terms, but are they, and same with Dennis Rodman and same with Phil Jackson, but like, are they ever spent time together? Yeah. yeah. And maybe could we get into Michael Jordan's like super petty Hall of Fame speech a little bit? Maybe too. Yeah. I'd love to address yeah. that. May, these might be separate documentaries. We need to talk about Jordan as an as an executive and team governor. Uh, yeah. And then also just his Hall of Fame speech. He, and then maybe just. He might not sign on for that one. He doesn't need to. I, I think at this point, you know, <laughs> we, we got the Michael Jordan propaganda. Now we can get the yeah. anti-Jordan cases. Maybe LeBron's people can produce it. So, yeah, what if what if that's LeBron's documentary? LeBron's gonna come out with a documentary on but his it, career. It's gonna be Michael Jordan's post playing career, <laughs> and it's just how nice LeBron was to teammates behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, those would be things I'd I'd like to see. The Hall of Fame speech, wishful thinking, but maybe they could get into, you know, they, if they're looking, it does seem like they're looking to humanize him a little bit, and I do believe that they've done that to some extent. But talking a little bit about what's happened, not just with his his family, his immediate family, you know what type of father he was during all this, uh, but maybe did he forge any lasting relationships that he's still close that former teammates consider him a, a close friend today? Because again, they talk about him with reverence, but there's just nothing really mentioned about, you know, this isn't supposed to be a post playing career thing, but how many stories have you read about his just ties to, to friends anyway, from all this? I feel like yeah. that sort of, maybe he's kept that under wraps because apparently him and Kobe were very close. And so I'm not saying he owes it to us, but that would be intriguing to see. And that, that's probably something else you could argue would be nice to get more of a whiff of. Is just it does seem like there was a deeper seated relationship between he and Kobe that we only really 
we got a feel for him when he gave a speech at uh, Kobe's tribute, and then we they touched on it briefly here. It would be interesting to go more into that, but of course they didn't think that they were going to be dealing with Kobe Bryant posthumously during yeah. all this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another tragedy for sure. Uh, um, another, um, now I'm going to probably drop like five more on you. I always wonder too, like when I'm in front of a judge, how many times am I saying, um, in a hearing or a trial, but that's just me. I wanted to fill you in on one thing before we wrap up, unless you have any other takes on, uh, episodes seven and eight of the last dance no i'm just i'm just lamenting that there's not going to be episodes like 19 and 20 i know like that's I'm, what this needs. I'm with you i think this could go on for a long time and maybe maybe it will maybe there will be a follow-up documentary as you're saying so halfway through the 1998 major league baseball season <laughs> mark mcguire had 37 home runs sammy sosa had 33 ken griffey jr had 31 and it was definitely a three-man race. For a they had bit. to have been talking about him. Yeah. Right. And he was already a superstar at that point. He hit 56 the year before, too. So I promised that was related because that's the summer of 98, the same year that Jordan wins his last championship against the Utah Jazz. If you want to talk to us about the last dance, uh, you know that we are active and interactive on Twitter. You can find Dan at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. The show is at Hardwood Knox. The podcast network is at Blue Wire Pods. As always, we encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. If you've already done that, make sure you tell your uh, friends and family to subscribe and, and do some rating as well. They will thank you for it down the road, I promise. And until next time, we leave you with the shout out to Kyle Anderson, Benna Udry, and BJ Armstrong. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.